You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guests are Trudy Ambler and Pushpa Sanaya, both teachers and educational researchers. In this episode, Trudy and Pushpa reflect on their early studies and teaching experiences leading up to their more recent research activities. We chat about their latest article, Reviewing the Literature, Collaborative Professional Learning for Academics in Higher Education. We explore the value of scrutinising the existing research and literature alongside the practice of peer observation and learning circles, with both elements working in tandem. Trudy and Pushpa outline the use of informal feedback within various activities as part of a continual process of learning. Approaches like observing colleagues, mentoring, follow-up discussions within small groups of peers, communities of practice within departments and faculties, and various other strategies that are embedded into everyday practice that can be used by teachers and academics in universities, as well as in other educational sectors. Underpinned by the academic literature, these models move away from a formal judgment, review and evaluation of one's teaching process. Instead, they provide teachers with an opportunity to share and critique ideas and to learn from each other in order to, in turn, support their own students' learning. Here's my conversation with Trudy Ambler and Pushpa Sanaya. Good to see you again, Trudy, and nice to meet you, Pushpa. And we're going to hear from Trudy first. So it's been a while. We were catching up a little bit earlier. It's been seven years since we we worked together as colleagues. So rather than tell us what you've been doing in that seven years, we take us all the way back, not so much to your early ukulele playing, but what what where did you what were you interested in as a younger person and and what's led you to where you are now um i think the thing that gained my interest in teaching was as a young girl um my aunts were very keen on the value of education and i think the reason for that was that um and we're talking quite a long time ago now is that they didn't have that opportunity. You know, they were from big, a big family and their dad told them that really if anybody was going to be educated, it would be the boys in the family because what would happen is they, they would go off and get a job and support the rest of them as opposed to in those days, you know, women, they would get married and they would have children. And so, the, you know, that value wasn't there. So. Given that was the case, I always thought to myself, if I have the opportunity, I'm going to go to university. And there was never any doubt in my mind that I wanted to be a teacher. Some people are undecided about what they want to do. Um, But for me, I had great teachers when I was young, and I just thought there's so much to gain here. And I did want to make a difference. Even, you know, when I was in my teens, I thought I want to be able to make a difference for other sort of women specifically, but for for people generally. So... Um, I went off to university when I was 18. I went to uh, Winchester, which is in the south of England. And as a city, it's very much like my hometown, York. It's quite historical. Um, And I think that was one of the reasons I chose it. I spent four years there. 
Um, and interestingly, it was only in 1960 that that particular university enrolled women to be um, educated as teachers. Um, I went in 1978. I was there for four years and absolutely loved it. Um, when I graduated, obviously, I went straight into teaching. And at the time, um, if you want teaching, what sort of teaching? I had a primary school. I, I, my first role was in primary education. Um, and I taught right across the age range, from right from kindy up to year six. Um, and I did that. I started my teaching in York at a beautiful school, Heslington Primary School, which was right next to York University. Beautiful old school, big apple orchard. Um, and I had a wonderful mentor when I was teaching. He was a more mature teacher. And one of the things that I always struggled with, I was always looking for children's writing books and reading books. And can we find the ruler? Can we find the pencil? And he said, Trudy, you're just really going to have to just sharpen up your housekeeping because that's the reason you're spending all this time looking for things instead of, you know, engaging children in learning. So I, he, he was just, I had wonderful mentors right through my uh, teaching career, I've got to say. So he was my first mentor. Then after that, I moved on. I went to another school in Newcastle upon Tyne. It was in the west end of Newcastle, and we had a very diverse um, community. But again, my principal, she was great, and she said to me, look, you know, if you if you want to go anywhere in teaching, you're going to have to do some more study. And at that point in time, I was like, oh, I'm not really sure about that. Anyway, she sent off and she got me the information to do my master's, which I did in education at Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Um, in a sense, I think she was visionary, realising, you know, quite early on that anybody who was going to take on a position of responsibility would need, you know, to engage in further professional learning, which I did. And what was the focus of your master's? So I looked at how teachers' conversations can be a source for professional learning. So the thread through all my um, research has been teachers' learning. So that's where I started. Um, and then after that, I, of all places, I went to Papua New Guinea, where I worked for the International Education Agency. Wonderful experience again. And, um, you know, I had the opportunity to work with some great teachers, which were from diverse backgrounds. We had teachers, you know, from Africa, New Zealand, Australia, which really sort of broadened my outlook and, the whole cultural experience, I think, enriched my teaching, I would say. I came back from Papua New Guinea to, to I came to, to Australia, where I continued my teaching as um, deputy head learning and teaching at Westbourne Grammar School. And when I was there, I was working on a project with some teachers and an academic from Melbourne University, Dr. John Monroe, was also working. And he said to me, why don't you use this project and do your PhD? And I was like, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> but it was another really fortuitous um, thing that happened because I've always felt that your research should be embedded in your practice. And what it allowed me to do was embed my research in practice. Now, I didn't do my PhD with Mon uh, with um, Melbourne in the end. I did it with Monash because um, I worked with Brendan Dopey and John Loughran. Um, 
And the reason for that was they had a, a focus on teacher learning, but the role of narrative in teacher learning, which was an area that I was exploring. So I did my uh, PhD. And then after that, I was working with the um, Victorian Institute of Teachers, again, focused on professional learning, looking at literacy and numeracy. And then from there, I went to Macquarie, where I spent most of my sort of teaching in higher education. And then I've had the great good fortune now to be an honorary academic at Victoria University. So I would call myself a teacher. Wow, that's quite a tale. That's a very, very good summary. I feel inspired to become a teacher myself. Hang on. Oh, I'm glad to hear that because, you know, I am become tired with hearing all the negative voices about teaching. There's so much pleasure and so much to gain from being involved in teaching. Yeah, no, that, that's that's great. Um, we'll come back to your tale, as you know, in a few minutes. But in the meantime, I would like to hear from Pushpa. What's your, where, what, what, tell us a little bit more about where your background and how you ended up in this situation. So I had a slightly different journey. Um, so my um, undergraduate degree it was in a Bachelor of Science and then I went on to uh, do a PhD in neuroscience, and that's my discipline uh, area of research. And so I did this at the Harvard Florey Institute, and this was way back in 1999. Uh, and then I actually spent 10 years working in the States, uh, doing further research and um, focusing on uh, obesity research um, and uh, various comorbidities of uh, obesity. And even then, uh, I, my focus was on my discipline area of research, but I always wanted to be able to get into um, teaching. But I never really had the opportunity while I was doing my research. And then I returned to Australia in 2009. Uh, and since then, I've been focusing on a academic uh, career, teaching now uh, science and particularly first year um, physiology, uh, and, and I'm based uh, as a teaching and research focus academic with the first year college at uh, Victoria University. Um, but obviously, I, I, I started my academic career as a casual um, sessional academic, um, and um, even this, uh, and and. I've always been interested in professional learning and being able to learn various um, aspects of, of teaching uh, even then. Um, and so if I had the good grace of uh, uh, obtaining a you know full-time ongoing position at Victoria University and I've just and that just got me off and running uh, in terms of developing um, student-based, um, learning, but also focusing uh, on the teacher aspect of uh, professional learning. And, yeah. Okay. I've got a couple of questions. Is neuroscience the same as cognitive science? Uh, it's a uh, uh, neuroscience is a broad term, so to speak, whereas cognitive uh, science focuses on um, cognitive uh, theories. 
uh, I actually looked at, for my PhD, how a particular uh, system uh, called the renin angiotensin system in the brain worked as a neurosignaling mechanism. So, what does that and mean? now, what does um, that mean in everyday language? Uh, in terms of um, how the brain regulates uh, what you drink, how much you drink. Um, in terms of fluid balance. And now in terms of obesity, looking at what parts of the brain uh, gets activated when you um, uh, want to eat. So there are you know, certain reward pathways in the brain, uh, but we also eat uh, for um, survival. <laughs> you know, so it, it's, uh, the term is called homeostatic reason for um, eating. Um, but we are very interested, you know, we, we in that reward pathways in the brain. And, and that's where pharmacotherapies these days are kind of targeted uh, to enable to find this magic pill for obesity treatment. Hmm. Um, that's very interesting. See, I I'm, I'm need to reveal I'm a former high school science and biology teacher. This is really interesting. So yeah. I'm just wondering what was it that drew you to want to um, explore teaching? Um, I guess in the in the in the lab itself, you spend a lot of time um, with your peers um, teaching, so to speak, in terms of um, you know uh, designing experiments, doing experiments. Um, and, and it was a natural tendency to uh, teach uh, the younger, uh, students who come into the lab over the course of 10 years that I was um, uh, in research. Um, so there was always that interest in terms of sharing what, I le- what I've learned um, uh, in the lab. So uh, when I returned back to Australia, I was lucky to um, be offered casual positions, teaching in both La Trobe University and Monash University and then uh, Victoria University. Um, and then I was able to get an ongoing position at Victoria University. So I was always interested then, you know, naturally in teaching science and um, physiology. So it was a natural stream. Um, but one of the uh, first things that you know, I also did was engage in a graduate certificate in tertiary education. And so I, I became aware of the pedagogical theories that underlie, you know, good practice uh, in teaching. And that got me really interested uh, in scholarship of learning and teaching research, so education research. And so that's really um, been my focus uh, whilst I've been gaining uh, teaching experience and building the whole teaching portfolio. Uh, I've also been, you know, simultaneously involved in research, which has been valuable. So I might um, uh, move on to your actual research, the fact that you have collaborated with um, you and, and a few other people. I'm just looking at your paper. How did this this is part of a study that's kind of a, a huge, bigger study, or is it? But like, how did this come about between the two of you? I might just start with maybe the, how we came together in that um, I had the great good fortune 
to work um, on a project in the first year college with um, my colleague Ian Solomonides when he was there. And um, he wanted to um, prepare teachers specifically for teaching first year students. And he would he asked me if I would work with some of the academics to develop um, an approach to professional learning. So that was something that we did. And from that, I established connections with the staff at VU and um, had the good fortune to meet um, Pushpa. And she was telling me, uh, talking to me about some work she'd been doing on learning circles and teachers collaborate. And of course, my ears just prickled up thinking, oh, professional learning, that's my basket. This sounds really exciting. Um, and then we just started talking and uh, probably best if maybe um, Pushpa tells us a little bit about how she got interested in the um, professional learning circles. Yes. Um, so I got introduced to um, this notion of teaching and learning circles when I attended a conference, the Hertzer conference uh, in New Zealand. Um, in 2019, I think. Um, and so the group um, in New Zealand presented, you know, their work uh, on what they call teaching and learning circles. And that really captured my um, interest uh, in being able to, you know, come back and do this at my home institution at VicUni. Um, and then what happened was COVID hit. <laughs> and with COVID, uh, and especially in Melbourne, Australia, we were, I think, the hardest hit in terms of uh, isolated uh, periods. And we went to strictly an online mode of teaching. Um, so it created this whole environment where our peers, uh, we were all quite isolated. Um, from each other in this online space of teaching. Um, so, you know, um, I was really uh, interested in then being able to use or come up with this idea um, in terms of adapting the teaching and learning circles in this space to kind of uh, build um, a more collegial uh, sharing uh, of uh, teaching in that online space, like what is everybody else doing in this space? Because um, it was all quite new for us um, in terms of that pivot uh, to pivot. online learning. Yes, <laughs> I it was, remember the pivot. <laughs> yes, it was so sudden. Um, so, and, and it enabled us to really, you know, uh, so we really started this program in an online space uh, and that enabled us to kind of uh, observe uh, our peers in a you know uh, online Zoom um, interface uh, and kind of uh, figure out what's happening and what we can learn. Um, so that was really useful as well. Um, I just thinking back a few minutes back for for teachers that are already part of a learning circle, they would understand exactly what you're talking about and it would resonate. And I'm looking at you. You know, you've got a definition in your table within your your paper, your article. But what is just in everyday language? Maybe for somebody that's not a teacher or not involved in this sort of territory, just in simple or straightforward terms, what's a learning circle? 
to be, even a face-to-face learning circle, let alone an online learning circle, what, what is it and what do you do in it? And why do you need it? And, and then we're going to find out all the detail about your research, but I just thought it might be good to just define what it is. You, uh, well, uh, again, I'm, I'm going to defer to um, Pushpa on this, but uh, one of the things that I would say is... Um, the, the slight difference in terms of just a you know a learning and teaching circle is that this is about um, is called collaborative peer observation learning circles. So I think the peer observation for me is a critical part of this, um, and and it, it does have stages and phases in it. And maybe push per, if you would like to speak to that in terms of practice how you've implemented it in in your discipline yeah so the idea of um creating a a collaborative um uh, peer teaching circle was then to have teachers either from across disciplines um even in the same disciplines we weren't really tied either way uh, to just get together um, so they could um, like in a tea form- room or something or a meeting yes, room. They, well, uh, ideally to to form um, you know just the group. And um, how many and- typically would be in the group? Yes, um, we kind of looked at about four to five people, and it could even be less. It kind of really worked well in groups of three uh, in terms of just the practicalities of being able to observe teachers. So you've got um, a science teacher, an English teacher, and a, I don't know, another type of teacher, and they're yeah, in the same location, it's- and then what happens? Um, so we would already form these circles uh, beforehand. So it, 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 the teachers themselves could take the in- initiative of um, creating their own circles, or sometimes we would have a facilitator who would uh, um, help this whole building of a circle. Um, we weren't tied to, or we weren't particularly strict about how that um, happens. So once we have a given circle of say three to four people, then what they would do is get together. You know, it could be over coffee, uh, lunch, uh, corridor chat, uh, in terms of figuring out their schedules, uh, when they could potentially observe uh, another peer in that given group. Um, and then we had developed a teaching observation template. Uh, And so teachers would use that template during their observations to collect um, ideas and uh, write down, you know, their thoughts during the whole process. So they're exchanging. They all share it. Yeah. They're learning from each other by the sounds of it. It's kind of like a, well, I've just got a hundred different kind of uh, maybe comparisons, but essentially you've got a group of diverse teachers coming together and then observing each other's lessons and then giving each other feedback, I suppose, on a, a really simple level. Yes. We were talking to each other about what was happening in, and Pushpa was describing the work that was going on. And um, I thought to myself, oh, it'd be really nice to document this because if other people would like to do it, um, that would be great. And the other thing is it's really, I think it's uh, beneficial not even beneficial, essential 
to underpin your practice with evidence, good evidence. Um, and so what we did was we collaborated with the other people who were involved in this project and we drew on our knowledge and expertise about collegial approaches to learning theories um, to look at what was underpinning the work that was going on. And I think in terms of process, this is important because when we think about research, sometimes we think about a method as a process, you know, we've got a question and whatever. And often inquiring practice does not manifest in that way. The, um, the practice and the theoretical aspects drawing on the research is underpinning it um, can collide at, in, in, at the same time. And it's a, it's a process of discovery. So I think in terms of the project, in terms of writing the paper, the practice um, was underpinned by some of the theory that came through from the um, work in New Zealand. But then as um, Pushpa expanded it and developed the approach, it was drawing on other research in the area. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Maybe I'll stop talking. You can tell me what happened. So um, I guess this particular uh, paper was actually us reviewing um, the literature and space uh, in professional learning and in particular collegial approaches to professional learning. Um, so, in fact, it, it sets up, you know, that question about what is it? What do we do? And what's been done beforehand? So we really wanted to look at, you know, this evidence-based practice, and I'll hand off to Trudy in a minute um, to kind of expand on these ideas. But uh, we looked at all of these different collegial approaches to professional learning, and that kind of informed our development of the uh, collaborative peer observation um, tools for our work. And we are yet to, it's, it's an ongoing project in terms of, yes, we have staff who have. We wanted to look at collegial approaches to professional learning that for which there was good evidence that um, they were successful at supporting academics and teachers. Um, specifically something that could be embedded in day-to-day -day practice. Um, you know, some professional learning is more formal and it might be workshops, conferences, um, you know, particular online courses. But um, this specific focus is something that, that you can do or that anybody could do as part of their day-to-day -day work. And it's based on the idea that, um, you know, part of an academic's role as a teacher is, you know, you're involved in teaching and being a teacher means that you are engaged in a continuous process of learning. Now, how do you make that manageable? How do you make that doable in your day-to-day -day work? Well, some, some of the ideas that we drew on were mentoring and that, you know, people engaging in, you know, dyads or triads or small groups, peer, peer mentoring, they can learn from each other. Um, then we've looked at peer observation. We know that, you know, from observing uh, 
colleagues, we can learn about practice. We can pick up great ideas, you know, they can learn from us. It's a reciprocal process. Um, And then, of course, we've got the communities of practice, you know. We know that um, broadly, you know, within a department or a faculty or even in those small groups, as a community, we interact. And in that interaction, we learn from uh, one another. Then we've got, um, you know, the stuff, um, Marilyn Cochran Smith, Susan Little, um, you know, inquiry as practice, what they say is researching is integral to what it means to be a teacher. If you are not inquiring into your practice, then you're actually not a teacher. Um, So we drew on that body of research as well. We also looked at um, Angela Carboni's work on... Yes. Your assistant teaching yes. scheme. I'm looking at my notes here. So we've just got this massive body of work that says we can learn from each other in our practice in different ways. And we took the best from this seminal work and drew on it to develop uh, the process that um, Pushpa had been working on with uh, within her uh, department which was the peer observation learning circles. And if you look at in the in the paper, those phases of that process are underpinned by the literature. Yes, it's interesting that this is already the stuff that's happening already. It's like you you paused and you decided to gather um kind of examples of what what was working well, so that they're all collated into a well, in, literally into a table. But it's, it's this is a common practice, I guess, for research. I'm assuming I'm not a researcher, so I guess I'm, that's the spirit of my question. Well, I, I think that um, we actually selected seminal work in this area. It doesn't discount that there's lots of other work that's gone on in these fields, um, which brings to the methodology, the evidence-based practice, because there are different approaches to literature reviews. Um, but this approach was what I would basically call it's a narrative approach in that we are drawing on um, literature that is relevant to what we're looking at. Um, I mean, and there's bias in any approach, whatever you choose. Um, and we've declared that up, up front. Um, but sometimes... I think in research, it doesn't always go like this, does it? You know, sometimes you do start off with a question and a hypothesis and you start collecting the literature. But I think, which is what I was saying before, an inquiry practice, the two work together. Sometimes, you know, it's a bit of, I think um, David Hamilton calls it a fumbling act of discovery where things happen along the way on the journey and you start to weave them into what you're doing so that you're developing meaning and understanding about your work. And to me, that's the essence of embodying professional learning into your practice. Mm, I'm intrigued by the inquiry practice process and what, you know, um, I guess I'm just wondering why did you take that approach? But then it's sort of like, well, it seems like it's really there's a lot in it right out of the gate. Like it's kind of it reminds me of when teachers sometimes you hear of doing action research in a classroom where it's so their practice is so kind of um related 
to the research that it almost like doesn't have a beginning or an end. It's all just this cycle. Is it is it along those lines? I think for me it is. Um, I mean, I think evidence-based practice builds on um, action research. Um, you know, the spiral of action research is, is that it's something that is continuous and it is ongoing. And as you do something, it throws up something else that you would need to look at. Um, in this case, I think it was relevant to the study because what you're doing is you're drawing on um, established literature. You're reflecting on that and seeing how it relates to um, what you're doing uh, in the generation of new understandings, new theory. So, And it models the idea of, of the academic as somebody who is in their teaching, is in, engaged in researching their practice, the scholarship of learning and teaching. Uh, and it also gives... Uh, the teachers an opportunity to share from each other and really creates a um, a collegial uh, environment um, to be able to do this sharing openly. Um, so um, the idea of uh, observations um, was a safe space uh, as opposed to teachers coming into your classroom and reviewing uh, your practice. So we, we wanted to move away from the aspect uh, of uh, reviewing someone uh, in, a, in the space. I've got a feeling this requires a more nuanced kind of discussion. What's the difference? Like how, you know, without going into all the detail, but on a sort of um, surface level, it seems like, well, isn't it the same, the reviewing, being observed, you know? But, but it's kind of there's differences, slight differences, and I guess it, it sounds very collegial though. Like into, I'm just imagining an actual, real life academic that's spent some time in their learning circle, and then there's a certain trust that's probably established. They're going into somebody else's um, classroom essentially. So what? And then I guess, well, I, I might stop talking. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about that. So we've we we created a uh, a structured resource which we uh, ended up calling a teaching observation template. So that kind of guides the academics in terms of um, uh, their observational practice during uh, a session, um, and then that is pretty much followed by. Um, a, a critical reflection period on the part of the uh, observers, and then to get together and have discussions within the circle about um, uh, what they learnt during uh, these uh, observation circles. Are so, you able to reveal without you can de-identify the data? But I mean, what sort of things do they talk about? You know, like they're not going to – some things are kind of like not that important, but what are what are some typical things that come up for academics that they're kind of talking about? Oh, one of the major things that uh, uh, have come about, and this was not part of the actual research aspect of it, and this is, was in the initial um, stages where we were um, – uh, looking at how these circles were working, 
and the sh- and the staff pretty much shared, you know, um, uh, things that um, they observed that were different, things that they never thought of doing themselves, and that was invaluable for them. Um, and the common thing they say was, "Oh, I I would have never thought of." you know, um, managing my classroom that way. Um, And that was useful for them because then that is their takeaway uh, in terms of what they could incorporate then later on uh, in their own classroom practice. Um, And that was the whole, you know, um, uh, impetus for the idea, but was really nice to see it playing out that way. Um, Trudy, did you have anything? Um, I was just going to say that um, I think one of the differences in terms of um, being reviewed and observed, and we'd have to draw on Gosling's work, which we have in the paper, is this idea that um, when when the academics are collaborating and sharing, it's about understanding. It's not about judgment and evaluation. It's to um, learn from each other and to share ideas um and also in that reflective space to be able to you know have some critical reflections well well, would i do this a different way could i do it differently um or you know this worked well so it's not just a passive space of um acceptance it's about being able to um get the best um for yourself and for others um with regard to your practice as a teacher and as a human being, I think, as well. Look, I think the observational tool, Pushpa, if you want, I don't have it, I might have it in front of me here. Um, would it help if we, because I think it's it's great when you're doing an observation to have a little bit, bit of guidance, something to frame your conversation so that you're not just starting from a sort of a blank page, but at the same time recognising it can be flexible and, you know, you might look at it and think, well, there's something else I'd like to add here in terms of my practice. Um, I'm just going to, ha- I'm just going to. I'm just going to quickly look at the template. Yeah, I was just going to do the same as well. Isn't uh, it? <laughs> which is, which is what, about what's in that template. Yeah, okay. We've looked at yeah. it after, you know. <laughs> uh, which is what we call the teaching observation um, template that the staff actually bring into the observations. Well, it's um, important because, you know, yes. you can't just lead them and they just sort exactly. of Exactly, and, and that's why we created such a thing because it's, it's you know, you can't just get teachers to say, off you go, you know, just observe someone and it makes it really difficult. <laughs> and what sort of pointers or guidelines or parameters do you kind of tend to suggest I can see you're both looking for your, your document. Yeah. Um, so essentially the teaching observation template has quite a few phases. Principally, we start off where um, the staff are encouraged to exchange their scheduling um, and Uh, just have a conversation about what they're teaching, um, their areas, so to speak. Um, And then the uh, uh, teachers observing, you know, they they will go to a session uh, and we have an observation phase where they will um, look at um, 
noting um, information, say every uh, five to 10 minutes. Uh, and we kind of encouraged uh, our uh, academics to look for aspects of uh, active learning in the classroom. So our observation was also built on the idea uh, of um, uh, teaching involving uh, active learning. Um, and this is principally stems from uh, Victoria University moving to a block uh, model, uh, which involves um, uh, students engaging in one single unit over a four-week intensive time period. Um, I, I, I have a question, a quick yes, question. Yes, yes. What What does active learning at university look yes. like? Uh, so principally in the block uh, model uh, uh, space, uh, it's about working, our students working in small teams um, and um, they uh, are encouraged or how we develop our active learning uh, modules uh, is through inquiry-based um, type of learning. Um, so we create activities that students can engage in that encourages um, um, active collaborative work within the uh, classroom space. And that's uh, facilitated uh, by the teacher in the classroom. So you would often call uh, the teacher a facilitator. Um, so the teacher is not the, the sage on stage in terms of sharing their knowledge, but they actually facilitating uh, active uh, communication um, and collaboration uh, amongst uh, students. Um, and so these are all small uh, team-based, what we call workshops. They uh, run for about three hours. So we actually had moved away from the lecture model, the typical traditional lecture style uh, environment of um, everyday universities. I think that in terms of process, you've got two things happening in parallel. One, you have the um, research in terms of uh, scrutinising the literature and running parallel with that, you've got the practice of the peer observation learning circles happening. So it's not that they really happened discreetly. They were kind of working together, I would say, in tandem. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So you've given a, an outline as to the, the, the kind of the, the nuts and bolts, the, the straightforward processes in terms of the literature review and what academics are doing on campus with their collaboration, lots of communication. I'm just wondering, like I've got a few questions and we won't have time to answer all of them, but what is the role of a teacher in a university or a role of an academic? And also this idea of knowledge creation, you know, the student's role, the academic's role, the teacher's role. Um, and then also I, I was wondering about how you go about documenting your process. But, I mean, you know, uh, there's a few questions in there um, crammed in. What, what say ye, Trudy? Um, 
Look, I think the question about the role of an academic um, in higher education, specifically um, that aspect of their teaching role, um, for me is an important one because it starts to open up the question, well, why should a a teacher be involved in professional learning, whether it be in the informal space or more formally? Um, what is it? What, what are the reasons that we would like them to maintain currency in their practice? Um, so there's a, a philosophical aspect to that, as well as um, a policy aspect in that, you know, um, a lot of the accreditation agencies at the moment are asking that um, academics do keep up to date with their practice and that they are au fait with all the current theories around learning and teaching and you know, what is the reason for that? And I think for me, the main reason is, but it's the one for which we have less evidence, is that what we understand is if we're learning, then there's a very good chance our students learning. And that is the main reason for it. If we engage in as become learners ourselves, then there's an opportunity to enhance um, students' learning. And I think this is something that's important and takes us into the next phase of the research because there's not a huge amount of empirical evidence um, around understanding what it is that happens when a teacher learns, what the impact of that is on a student's learning. Um, and by this is the kind of the next phase of the research that we're, we're actually looking at. I guess it's, it is interesting that this is kind of like an early phase. And I mean, it's kind of like bigger than what is is first um, kind of conceived, maybe. Just in saying that and, and saying, well, you know, why is professional learning important is because it impacts on student learning would lead into that next bit that Pushpuk is going to talk about, which is, you know, the research that we're now looking at, which is to understand the academics' experiences. So Astrid, you're saying that the aspect of looking at teacher learning on, on student learning is a, a very important aspect of the whole process. Um, and uh, our next phase, obviously, uh, will focus on documenting the teacher's experiences in engaging uh, in this whole process. Um, so we will um, uh, document it by um, a survey tool, um, uh, encouraging staff to share their thoughts with us and their experiences or their uh, uh, reflective um, ideas. Um, and then also to interview um, staff um, uh, as well in terms of not only within their circles um, because um, sometimes timing doesn't allow uh, interviewing within a circle and you might just have to interview, uh, have one-on-one interviews. Uh, but it helps to gather that information about uh, the teacher's experience um, within the classrooms and what they've learned and what they're actually going to then uh, implement uh, in their everyday teaching practice. Um, and, and that's uh, really uh, valuable for us to be able to document um this whole process so that we can gather information in terms of um 
uh, or even create a whole toolbox of what works in the classroom uh, and what doesn't work in the classroom. And, and, and it just um, enables this constant um, uh, idea of uh, continued learning in our practice, day-to-day practice. Mm-hmm. Um, please be gentle with me. I may be a stupid question, but is this because there's not enough empirical evidence in this territory? So your process of surveys and interviews and documentation, that's building evidence of practice, I, I should imagine. Uh, yes, correct. Um, the other important thing to be said also is that it enables the teachers themselves to build uh, evidence or a portfolio um, uh, from the feedback that they've received as well in terms of engaging um, in these uh, collaborative peer learning circles. Um, so typically all teachers um have for evidence are institutional student evaluations of teaching, uh, which at the best of times are not useful for the teachers themselves to gain information or have feedback of how they could improve. Uh, And so this process actually enables them to receive very informal feedback um, about their own teaching practice but also having observed others, what they could incorporate into their teaching moving forward. So to think of it, it it kind of helps to build a portfolio for, to use even for future uh, applications um, to evidence their own uh, professional learning or for promotion uh, promotion, uh, applications and so forth. Hmm. How important is the collegial aspect? I mean, I think it's essential because what we're looking at here is uh, learning as a social enterprise, um, something that occurs in spaces between um, our, our colleagues. Um, so if you if you didn't collaborate, I mean, we're not talking about forced collaboration here. We're talking about you know generally people who we'd like to think that they want to be together or work together in the, in the peer observation learning circles um, because I think there is a bit of a difference um, because without that, without the sense of, I mean, it's difficult, it's very difficult to observe yourself and see yourself. And so one thing that I think your peers bring is they enhance that process of self-understanding and, you know, put a new lens on it sometimes. That feels like it's a really big idea, really. There's an enormous amount of, I don't know, thought in that. Just as kind of like it's a simple enough sentence, but it's kind of like that process of the bouncing ideas off your peers, getting feedback, suggestions. Um, I think observation in itself is a, a very complex undertaking and... I just know from, you know, my, I can look at my own practice and I'm going to choose one here of um, working with uh, students and teaching reading. Um, sometimes you observe what you know, and if you don't know it, then you don't see it. So there's two things working in tandem there. Um, you do need some sort of 
knowledge about a particular area, I think, is helpful in that otherwise you might miss things. So, you know, when other people observe you, they might know things that you are not aware of yourself and they help you to see them. Yeah. Hmm, I guess that points to the kind of purpose. What's the why? Why is this? Why have you undertaken this research? Or why is what's the the purpose of this initiative? And you know, I I should imagine the short version is to improve learning and teaching on campus. Yes. But yes. is there is there more? Could you speak more on you know the the kind of under underpinning aims of uh, of this these initiatives? Um, I think it's uh, from what we've um, seen so far. It's uh, the teachers find it invaluable to have someone observe them in the classroom and give them this informal feedback, um, and then that that gives them the time to go away and reflect on their own practice and then incorporate new ideas. So you have this space where there's continual learning and. Uh, improvement in what we could do on a day-to-day basis. And I think that is the, a really uh, valuable takeaway. The process also we find uh, has been especially useful for new staff, um, just starting out early career um, teachers. Um, and so um, having someone give them feedback um, has been really useful. And it's actually morphed into uh where staff um, mentor each other in the classroom, so to speak. So they might actually attend even more than a single observation session um, and and get involved uh, in a uh, more team teaching uh, aspect uh, in the classroom. Um, So we've we've seen these things develop um, in just... Uh, recent times. Um, uh, And obviously the other thing we've also uh, realised and is critical for success of these circles is leadership, uh, a support from uh, leaders at institutional level uh, for this um, type of uh, observations to occur, a safe space uh, for all teachers to engage in this sort of practice. Mm. And so I guess... I was going to ask, what does that look like? And I guess it's that kind of having a space available, I guess having a time allocated schedule, people are busy, but it, it's kind of like um, those, well, not so much mechanical, they're kind of like mm, sy- systemic uh, kind of decisions maybe of, you know, valuing this is an, a valuable initiative and we want people to participate mm-hmm. and it's... Uh, because if you don't have that support from leadership in any initiative, it kind of is really quite an uphill battle. Um, what's is are these sort of approaches equally applicable to teachers in, say, a school? Definitely. Uh, you know, we're, uh, we've written a blog post talking about, you know, how you might manage um, the peer observation learning circles in day-to-day teaching. And we've suggested things like, you know, it, you know, for teachers, if they have a professional learning day, that um, time might be set aside on those days. We've also suggested that, you know, staff meeting time, you could allocate staff meeting time for it, or you could be more informal than that. It could be, you know, you've just got um, 
you know, sometimes teachers work together in a group, like all the year three teachers might come together and they have their curriculum planning time. You could incorporate it into those activities. Um, and we've put the call out if anybody, if people have got suggestions, other ideas about how it might work in day, in day-to-day practice to, um, to, to let us know really. But I think it's, is certainly relevant to um, all sectors of education. Can I can I think out loud? Because I, I think that um, I, for me, it's that I'd like teachers or anybody academic, whatever you might call them, to um, be cognizant of the fact that there are lots of opportunities for learning in your day-to-day work. Um, and your colleagues can have a central role to play in that, whether it be in some of those things like mentoring or, uh, you know, just, you know, peer observation. And certainly the peer observation learning circles would be one of those um, approaches that you could draw on in your practice um, to engage in a process of learning. And I don't know if this is relevant, but for, for me as well, there's something else going on here in that, I would call it a democratic principle in in terms of um, education and learning because I think central to this is prioritizing our students and our students' learning because we know that they're going to go out into society and they're going to be roles like paramedics, nurses, teachers, engineers, and all these sorts of things. And what I'd like to think is that we've equipped them and prepared them to go out into those fields um, to make the most of it for themselves and also for others. And I think that's probably the democratic principle underpinning it is that it's not just about us. It's about how we see, you know, the future of society and, you know, people generally. Yeah. And and we've especially wanted to make available the uh templates mm. so that um you know anybody can come along and actually adapt it to their own needs in terms of what's happening at their own institution mm. um so um that that could be a really useful thing um as you know just a useful thing to take away uh, from the paper itself that they could have a go themselves <laughs> and see how it works for them and adapt it to their needs yeah, have a go. I, I agree, Pushpa. Have a go, yes. <laughs> have a go. In this episode, I chatted with Trudy Ambler and Pushpa Sanaya. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes, including a link to the article, Reviewing the Literature, Collaborative Professional Learning for Academics in Higher Education. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.